Welcome back, my friends, to AA Recovery Interviews. I'm your host, Howard L., and I'm an alcoholic, sober since January 1st, 1988, one day at a time. I'm grateful you've joined us. AA Recovery Interviews is the podcast where Alcoholics Anonymous members from around the world share their extraordinary stories of experience, strength, and hope. Today, I'm pleased to welcome Ryan A. to AA Recovery Interviews. Like many members of AA, Ryan's sojourn towards sobriety grew out of a hectic childhood in a home where addiction was a best-kept secret. As an only child, Ryan's family had moved more than a dozen times by the time he was 12. Dealing with the constant loss of whatever brief friendships he experienced, the impermanence of his relationships fueled not only feelings of loneliness and isolation, but also the need to act out. Believing that alcohol and drugs would fix what was wrong with his life, Ryan opened the throttle on his growing disease during his teenage years. By 19, Ryan's behavior warranted a short stint in AA, where his half-hearted attempt was largely ineffective. Five more years of drinking and drugging landed him in an inpatient treatment facility, followed by IOP, but once again, prideful intellectualism and ego conspired with his alcoholism and forced another slip. Landing in the same mire as before, Ryan continued to flail in the disease and the mounting problems it caused during the next five years. By April of 2017, his quality of life deteriorating, Ryan finally came into AA with the willingness and desire to do whatever was necessary to achieve sobriety. With a new commitment to stay sober, Ryan implemented all of the tools needed to succeed at sobriety. He got a sponsor and worked the steps. He attended daily meetings. He took on service responsibilities, including staffing the coffee bar four days a week at a large AA club. He also found time to sponsor men and attend AA retreats. The net effect of all his sincere efforts was a spiritual awareness and awakening that wholly enriched the quality of his program. I've learned a lot from Ryan during the time we've spent together and am pleased to see his outstretched hand of welcome to those who attend the meetings we go to each week. But for those who are relatively new in sobriety, Ryan's demonstration of a well-worked program will provide significant hope and inspiration for a brighter future. So please enjoy listening to this episode of AA Recovery Interviews as you spend the next 65 minutes with my good friend and AA brother, Ryan A. Hey, I'm Ryan. I'm an alcoholic. Hi, Ryan. Thanks so much for being on the AA Recovery Interviews podcast with me today. I really appreciate you doing this. And you and I just came out of an extraordinary meeting uh, that that we have been attending together for a while uh, right next door. So it was really kind of convenient for us to get together today, but I'm glad you're taking the time to do it. Well, thank you. I actually had a lot of fun during that meeting. Good. It was a good meeting, wasn't it? You and I have known each other from that meeting, but I also had the opportunity to spend a weekend with you at an AA men's retreat here in town. And it was really an excellent way. I always suggest to men that an AA retreat is a great way to get to know other men. Going to meetings all weekend long, eating meals with guys, just hanging out. It's such a great way to power up our programs. Uh, How long have you been sober now? Five and change. My sobriety date. It's April 24th, 2017. So I'm a little over five years. A little over five years. Wow, that's terrific. And have you gotten your brains out of hock yet or are they still there? Uh, I think I'm hearing the pop in slow motion. <laughs> that's great. Was was that date uh, in April 
five years ago. Was that your only sobriety date, or had you attempted to get sober before then? It was my only honest sobriety date. I've given this some thought in that um, I have been in the rooms a couple of times prior. Once when I was 19 after my first blackout because of some consequences. I did a 30 and 30. I didn't stay sober the whole time, but I did the 30 meetings. Uh huh. And the next time was when I was in treatment. Uh, I was voluntold to go to treatment around 24, 25 and then was sober for about like 100 days or so. And that was inpatient and then IOP. Uh-huh. And then a couple of days of personal recreational sobriety. And then <laughs> it didn't really <laughs> last. So I don't think I was serious for any of those times. How long between the recovery facility and your latest or last sobriety day? I think it was a solid five years. Five years. Wow. So you were 19 when you had your when you went to your first AA meetings. Uh, even though you you weren't invested in it, what was it that brought you to those meetings? What was going on in your life or within your family that was creating the need for you to do that? I had gone to school a year earlier and within eight months of working in a robotics lab and not attending any classes and staying stoned the whole time, I failed all my classes and came back and. Uh, started staying with my family for a short period of time, Mm -hmm. got a couple, you know, silly jobs, um, one at a movie theater and then another one at a, at a gaming cafe doing computer repairs. Mm -hmm. But Mm -hmm. I, uh, quickly gravitated towards finding people that I could drink and party with at the time that was predominantly alcohol, weed, occasional mushrooms kind of deal. Now was, was that an outgrowth of your behavior in earlier years uh, i mean what what kind of uh what kind of nuclear family did you come out of i'm an only child i moved a lot as a kid i think that's one of the biggest defining features for myself uh-huh. uh, i remember making jokes with other oil kids and or military kids that we all kind of just got used to moving every six months to year to two years or whatever the deal was because you'd get stationed or promoted or whatever the deal is and you said yes to those positions so the whole family was invested in the process um it's not like anybody stayed behind so i learned really quickly to uh drop friends as quickly as i was able to make them yeah it's interesting that the skill of making friends translating into the skill of being able to lose friends I remember my mother telling me that when I was a kid and we moved uh, a number of times. She said, you know, the biggest part of growing up is learning how to make and lose friends. And that didn't make it any easier, though, you know. So uh, now was your dad military? No, oil industry. Yeah. So you moved quite a bit as a young child or an older child? Mostly young. I think we had moved about 10 times by the time I was 12. Wow, that's crazy. We moved to Katy on my 12th birthday. And how long did you live there for? Before leaving for college, about six years. So that was the longest period of time I had stayed anywhere, really, by that point in my life. And uh, I didn't know how to adjust to keeping friends or maintaining relationships. Uh I didn't have a lot of practice in that. So I was real angry. Yeah, I'll bet you were. I'm curious as to what your folks' response was to some of that coming from you, uh, your your disappointment or your anger of having to move so often. Did they give you any words of encouragement or, or were you just kind of left out of that picture? Generally speaking, my parents are very positive and driven people. 
there's a bit of workaholism as well as alcoholism that is evident there in retrospect, right? Uh, stuff that mm-hmm. I wasn't really cognizant of or didn't have the right eyes for at the time. I secluded to a private world very early on in childhood. And that was my maintenance method. Uh, I bottled up, I withdrew and found things that would really interest me and then just dive into them myopically and then like let everything else kind of tune out. You know, that's not an uncommon story amongst people I've interviewed who were only children or from small families where they were mostly overlooked. They would withdraw into themselves But then that didn't always translate to their behavior outside of the home. A lot of times kids, you know, they either uh, withdraw and isolate in public situations like school and that sort of thing, or they overreact and they act out and they're troublemakers and they get involved with the wrong crowds. Uh, On what end of that scale did you end up on? Both. In what way? I learned to make friends very quickly and lose them just as easily. Mm. So I relate these days to a fear of putting down roots Mm -hmm. because they'll just get ripped up. There's an impermanence and transience that I'm used to living with. And then when we, for example, moved and when I was 12 Mm -hmm. and we stayed there for six years before I wound up going off to college. Hmm. That was very disorienting. Now, by that time, I had also developed a lot of anger and resentment. I I identify as growing up dry. Um, By the time that I drank and used, I was already deep in anger and all the things that we discussed. So you had the ism long before the alcohol was involved. So that by the time I started, I was binging and purging alcohol within the first week and it was only within another year that I was experiencing a blackout. So what was the behavior that filtered down through the family? Being an only child you had your mom and dad where does alcoholism show up in your extended family or within your nuclear family? Has it been an issue or have it been other things? Well, you know I think a lot of what we experience is we have to clean up our side of the street in order to be able to build relationships with family members. True. At least to find out what relationship is available to build in the first place. Um, Not only until then do we get to find out some of that history. And that took and still takes time. There's still an an, an opening, right, like an apocalypse that's happening there. What I found was that I come from alcoholics and people who have abused drugs at various points. Mm -hmm. Uh, There were members on my mom's side of the family and somewhat on my dad's side as well, albeit they come from very different upbringings. Mm -hmm. There are clear traces of it now and I knew somewhat growing up but didn't really understand Um, as well my mother has experienced her own too and those were things that I didn't understand until later there were some experiences there that were not fun uh, after I found out what things could look like yeah I get that when you went 
through your, I guess it was inpatient followed by outpatient at the treatment center. When you experience that, usually families coming in for counseling sessions are part of that. Did your folks come in and in what ways did that help or hinder your recovery? They came in, we had our, uh, whatever that group family day is, where we all come in, they've got a couple counselors in the room, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, my parents and I proceeded to turn it into a knockdown drag out. <laughs> <laughs> and the perfectly mannered, intelligent, albeit maybe a bit Teflon, person that I had been in in the treatment center, mm-hmm. people had a chance to see the other side of. <laughs> <laughs> now, this is when you were 24 that this occurred. 24, right? 25, yeah, somewhere in there. Because I, you know, when when I went out to. Um, a treatment center where my, my sister was before I got sober, uh, they had actually a family week. And we were out there for, I think, four or five days. And But I remember, for as much as we were at each other's throats in the sessions with the, the therapists, there were some things that were revealed during that time that I'd never known about before. Things like the emotional and sexual abuse my mother had experienced as a child in foster homes where she went from one to the other to the other and had nothing but problems. And then my dad's issues with post-traumatic stress from the Second World War and, and uh, his own sexual abuse. And all These are things that came out and they were like missing puzzle pieces. And as a result, I was able to say, no wonder this happened, no wonder that happened. It didn't make me feel any better about the fact that it happened, but it gave me some kind of clarity. Some, did, did you experience any of that? Definitely. Um, you know, I just had this like facial expression reaction to what yeah. you're saying, right? Uh-huh. To what you were earlier asking, I felt like I was growing up without certain information. Hmm. I think there was a lot of honesty about a lot of things mm-hmm. and that there was, I mean, generally I had a pretty great upbringing, in all honesty, but there were, there were like blackout zones in terms of either like memory or shared information that like couldn't, couldn't get in, couldn't access, couldn't fulcrum mm-hmm. out. There was no way to weasel in those. Yeah. I think really the only way to do it now as I look back was to push a button. If I could hit you in your sore, you would react, which would then display the pain that came from that trauma. It's not a direct relationship, mm-hmm. but in looking back, I can go, oh, that pain response that they reacted to me with actually came from this other thing. I have the clarity to see that through line now. Yeah, I get At that. the time, I didn't. All I, I was carrying all of my own isms. And all I could do was emotionally react out of my own pattern behavior and hurt, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Those pubescent years Mm -hmm. were really intense. I think my mom was going through menopause at the time. I was going through puberty. And we were at each other's throats for as, like, conversational as we were. Ultimately, I don't remember why I left. When I I came back, I failed college out the first time. Um, And the second, no, I got suspended the second time. Anyway circuitous college career. When I was 20 and left the house, like, I don't remember what the reason of the argument was. All I know is we had some small thing explode and turn into something big, and I hit that threshold where I was fed up, and I left. And and really, that was old, 
hurt being re-stimulated in a way that no longer has like any logical or rational grounding anymore. That kind of self-understanding that you have now is so valuable to your future growth and what you gained, I guess, back at the treatment center and with that experience also lends itself to that. When you were living at home during that time, what was your involvement with drugs and alcohol? I had taken ecstasy once at a concert when I was 16 because some girl was like, hey, I found this in my <laughs> purse. Do you want it? I went, yeah, sure. Why not? Um, and had a good time. Uh -huh. And other than that, I was actually really elitist about not doing drugs and alcohol. I said, I don't need drugs to be crazy. And I called myself an addict. I already knew it. I knew the isms for what they were, but I didn't have the language or was familiar with the support or the amount of work that goes into it and the willingness that it takes, et cetera. But I identified with all the isms really early on. So you were a nascent uh, addict. By that point, I had already gotten deeply involved in porn. Let's okay. put it that way. Right, okay. So like I had, I had found one thing and then that didn't work. And, or it stopped working. And I found another thing, and then that stopped working. Another thing, and that stopped working. Another thing, and that stopped working. So by the time that I got to alcohol and drugs, I used them to excess instantly. But prior to that time, you could call yourself an addict because of other things, not alcohol and drugs, but some of these other things, and be truthful with someone else saying, I'm an addict, I can't go near that. Not that I can't go near it, is that I would embrace it and rub it in your face and go, what do you, what, right. do, do something useful. But I would also like skip school and then come back for robotics kind of deal. I was very much, I'd say, obnoxiously in your face about power dynamics and hierarchy and yeah. and, and elitism. I was elitist. It was really ugly. Elitist sounds like a, a kind of a glorified self-centeredness that you're better than the next guy. Uh, it's a defense mechanism. It, it is a defense mechanism. It, it, was it pretty uh, effective at keeping people away? I think it was pretty effective at keeping most people away which, you know, as I'm sure you've experienced, just the defense mechanism may be self-alienation. Right. But that also has the consequence of mm -hmm. self-isolation. And self-isolation is a pretty toxic place to live in. Mm -hmm. Or it can be increasingly toxic because that's where things continue to build up. Mm -hmm. So that's, you know, it's crazy land. So during high school, you weren't engaging in alcohol and drugs. When did you first start? When did you flip that switch over? Was that in college? Day two of, I left for college early because I found a job working in a robotics lab at the university that I went to. Mm. The mm. only way I could get housing on campus though was if I signed up for classes like a yoga class or something like mm -hmm. that just so that I could be enrolled in something yeah. and stay on campus. Within the first 48 hours, I found this really groovy mask shop across from campus and then hung out with the owner because we were jamming music and was utterly stoned laying on his front yard within like another three hours in an elevated area. I'd never really experienced elevation. So I was just totally floored, staring at the sky. He was the person who got you stoned the very first time? It might've been the second time. I think there was once that I Okay, so there were a couple other times. There was once that I smoked weed because of I was hanging out with a, like a pseudo girlfriend in high school, 
and I had done coke a couple of times because of that same girlfriend. She wanted to do it. No, she was doing it with other friends she had made. I see. I wound up with the bag. There was a period there where my parents were drug testing me for like a year too straight. I was constantly coming up negative. Because you weren't doing it. Because I wasn't doing anything. This was before I did anything. But they were convinced that my behavior had to be related <laughs> to drugs. Because why else would anyone act this way? No, I was just dry and angry. Mm -hmm. um, and, and still in the isms. So your second day of college, you get, you get stoned and within 48 hours, you know, you, you hit the gas pedal. By the end of the week, we're drinking. Was there a crowd or a group of, of people? Only the housemates that I had. Mm -hmm. That was really it. And were they partiers? Yeah. Yeah. So you became one. Basically, yeah. I had, well, I think I had always had it in me. Yeah. But because I wasn't regularly using or drinking, uh, that didn't really come out right. in a way that was perpetually like de detrimental. So you mentioned earlier that your first attempt at sobriety was when you were 19. So I'm assuming you went away to school at 18. So within one year, things had progressed to the point at which you needed some help. Yeah. That must have been a crazy year. Well, I mean, it started, I think I graduated on like May 24th or something. Uh -huh. My birthday was on May 29th. I, we were supposed to fly to the school for orientation June 2nd. Uh, that morning we find my mom comatose in the tub um, because she downed a fifth after being dry my entire life. And I had never seen that before. So we went to the hospital and pumped her stomach. And Was that something that she had been doing unbeknownst to you along the way or? No. She'd never done it before? She was just dry. I think she had gotten to a point where she wasn't working her program so much anymore, wasn't involved with a lot of people. I don't really know. But like the meeting we had today talking about fear, yeah. uh, she was racked with it. I was leaving. I didn't want anything to do with her. Mm -hmm. And she has her own family dynamics, right? Mm -hmm. And I was leaving and I was leaving her. And uh, she is a petite woman and down to fifth. So her world caved in mm -hmm. when you left and the time at which you were supposed to be getting all set up, she's found comatose, stomach pumped. And then, so we show up a day later and smooth it over. You know, we're all masters at smoothing shit over. Sure, yeah, I get that. Uh, I'm pretty versed at it by this point. I've learned the language from a very early age. Family secrets. Yeah. That's exactly it. Uh, this doesn't leave the family. That was part of the dynamic that always happened, uh, which is equally toxic. Yeah. At what point are you protecting yourself for others? That's something that I still go back and forth on sometimes. Yeah. And it definitely requires having trusted people to get feedback on, but it's not something that I can make sense of on my own. It's tough. And, and I mean, when you start talking about some of the codependence involved and some of the co-addictions involved. I mean, those could be entirely similar to what we're going through. And or complementary. Or complementary in a lot of ways. So you're with these guys, your housemates, you're getting drunk, you're getting stoned on, I'm assuming, a regular or a constant basis? Uh, chronic. Chronic basis. <laughs> so chronic means you're not leaving it for the weekends or the evenings, but you're doing it throughout the day? Yeah, sometimes. Huh. Yeah. 
I got hit by a car on my bike going from my apartment to the lab because I was too stoned going across the street on it. And he like kind of nudged me coming out of the parking lot because I wasn't paying attention right. and, dro- and rode out in front of him. Uh-huh. It was like, oh my God, oh my God, are you all right? And I was like, I'm, I'm good. <laughs> I got back on my bike and, you know, biked the rest of the way, but like totally, totally out there. So um, I'm assuming that your grades probably reflected that. Straight Fs. I lost my scholarship. I totally nosedived. What was the response from the folks? Very dissatisfied. Were you facing ultimatums at that point from them? Probably. Did you acknowledge that you had a problem at 19? I adopted the word alcoholic because it was the garment that suited the room that I was walking into. (laughs) That's a good way to put it. I like that. (laughs) Right. Like, how do I blend into this room? Say the fucking word. Yeah, yeah, it gets people. It gets people to leave you alone, doesn't it? Well, until they realize that you're not doing the steps, and they're wondering who the fuck your sponsor is, and right. they actually start to care because right. people start asking questions. Yeah, did that happen for you? Uh, yeah, it did, and I didn't get a sponsor. You kind of commiserate amongst the other youth, right? At the time that also are there because of either court orders or family orders or whatever the ultimatums were kind of deal. Mm-hmm. They need, they still, they don't have a job. They need their housing. They crashed a car. They're facing legal consequences, whatever the deal is. Let me make sure I've got the, the sequence of events. At 19, did you go in for a, to a treatment center? You didn't. At 24, you said you went to a treatment center. And then when you came into AA, the last 29, shy of 30, yeah. Almost 30. That wasn't at the end of a treatment center. That was just AA. Okay. I realized, so I went to a treatment center. So, you know, we go through a couple of years there, right? Um, I basically went hard, got interested in things, tried to start jobs, tried to start careers, had hard resets every six months or so, you know, going nuclear personally or professionally, and was in constant reset mode, more or less. It was really difficult for me to make any foundation at all, despite intelligence, despite opportunities, Mm. somewhere between pride and shame and excessive substance abuse. I just couldn't get squarely started and maintain momentum. Now, during this time that you were attempting to gain that momentum and stability and whatever else you were looking for. Managing life. Managing. You were looking to manage life, but you were looking to manage it through AA, through an AA program, or you weren't staying, were you sober at that time? You weren't. No. Okay. So it was in name only. I did the 30 days. 30 days. Uh, That was my first, you know, wake up, call, freak out kind of deal. Mm Mm-hmm. I didn't black out as heavily or as much from that time, but it began to happen more. During that time, though, when you were sitting in those meetings and you were doing the 30 days, let's say half-heartedly at best, do you recall hearing anything within that period of time that, looking back, that might have been a prophetic thing, but you ignored it? Was there any any particular point in that 30 days where you heard something that you said, yeah, if I could only get that, but then you moved on from that thought? Mm, no tombstones. Okay, all right. Uh, not that I can recall. 
but I think I stayed stoned for the second half of it. So You were not engaged. You were not. I was seeing how many lines I could pack in my cigarette because at the time you could still smoke inside the, the group club. So between 19 and 24, that's about five years. Yeah, I got involved in, in film with a friend. We started making shorts. Mm-hmm. I helped him through his thesis. I got involved in that after working in a... A computer repair store and gaming mm-hmm. cafe and movie theater and dicking around a lot. You were doing all that while drinking and using? Yeah. Yeah. I could build servers and stay stoned the whole time kind of deal. Well, that always makes you sharper, doesn't it? Uh, it made me freak <laughs> out less when I came across an anomaly. <laughs> it also made me, it allowed me to stay emotionally Teflon to most people. Yeah, I get it. Uh, in an environment that I didn't want to be in, in a life that I didn't know how to manage, with feelings that I didn't know how to live with. So once again, you were isolating and people left you alone. Or I made friends that were also performing the same behaviors who, guess what, when they feel like shit, self-isolate. Yeah. We all still carried the same pattern behaviors, at least in that respect. None of us knew how to live in a healthy manner, and it sure as heck didn't appeal to us. Mm-hmm. I sought oblivion. Give me oblivion now. I was hearing something in the meeting earlier. This guy was like, if I could manage a couple drinks, that would be great. And in my head, I was like, I don't want to manage a couple drinks. I want to manage to be able to black out and have no consequences happen and then have everything proceed forward marvelously. That's what I want to manage. Yeah, I get that. <laughs> Were you blacking out every time you got really drunk? For the second half. After, so, you know, we, we accelerate. I go a few years. I wind up in treatment. I stay sober four months. That second period prior to 29, mm-hmm. um, I was blacking out or at least browning out, what I call, mm. which is to say that, like, I was recording maybe 5% of what was going on, or I was at like very low consciousness versus no re- no recollection, no recording. Um, yeah. I would black out and come to while driving. I'd mm. black out, try and usually black out by the time I was at home though, Yeah. Um, so that I could just pass out and come to as they say. I never woke up, I just came to. What were you telling yourself during that time about the blacking out? Kind of blackout was sweet relief. Was it? Yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. That was seeking oblivion. To your to your same point though, like uh, Joseph Campbell speaks well of it: the failure to heed the call to action leads to psychosis or neurosis. Yeah, yeah. And that was something that I had instilled pretty early on. Yeah. So this this truth is haunting me this whole time. We're talking about the period between 19 and 24, and then your folks get involved and and ask you to go to treatment. And that's when you first go to real treatment. 30 days? I think I did 34 days, yeah. And then how long was the IOP after? I want to say another 60 days. Uh I think I wound up staying sober about 100 days in total. From the beginning to the the, hundred From the first day, yeah, yeah. Wow. Um, I think that last day wound up being Halloween. I wound up smoking weed at a friend's party. Eyes rolled in the back of my head, came down on the ground, head cracked on the ground. Everybody's like, oh my God, are you all right? And my my roommate was like, "Uh, did it happen again? I was like, yep, sure did. That ended that. And then I proceeded to smoke for a couple months and slowly picked up 
drinking again. Again. And the period during, I think this was a big thing, was that the period during treatment was like, I was fortunate enough to have insurance. All the costs were being covered. I had taken care of my apartment and was able to leave it for a month. All my meals are being cooked for me. All I have to do is show up and do the day that's prescribed for me and then go back to my room and then go to sleep and then wake up the next day. Mm -hmm. It's for self-work and self-development. I had always been interested in uh, storylines and narratives and Mm self-development and therapy and like therapeutic efforts, understanding self, etc. I was never able to hold on to the boons that Mm. came from that work, right? I could see something and go, oh, I get it, and then I would lose the momentum again, or I would drink or use and then blot it out, and then I would have to relearn the lesson. So I relearned a lot of lessons a lot of times. We'll be right back. My friends, if you've enjoyed my AA Recovery interview series and my Big Book podcast, check out Lost Stories of the Big Book, 30 original stories from the first and second editions of Alcoholics Anonymous, missing from the third and fourth editions. It's an engaging audiobook I narrated to bring these stories to life for AA members who've never seen them. These timeless testimonials were originally cut to make room for newer stories in the third and fourth editions but their vitally important messages of hope are as meaningful today as when they were first published. Many listeners will hear these stories for the first time. Lost Stories of the Big Book is available on Audible, Amazon, and iTunes. It's also available as a Kindle book, if you'd like to read along. You're going to love it. And we're back. So you had self-examination that occurred during this period of time, but the self-examination was just filed away into the self-improvement, self-examination, self-knowledge file without ever touching what was really going on deep down inside. It was the first uninterrupted self-examination period. I get it. I get it. Now, during that period of time, either the 30 days or the follow-up time, you're with people who are trying to get you to look at things a little differently. You're around other people who are or are not being affected by what they're learning and hearing and doing in treatment and in IOP. Was there ever a time during that 110 days or however long it was that you thought maybe you finally got it and you knew what was going on or were you just so intellectually prideful that you couldn't get to that? I think I intellectually got to it. I didn't know what it took in terms of having, I didn't have the willingness uh-huh. to seek humility in its own right, as they discuss in yes. the 12 and 12 and chapter seven, right? I intellectually got things, but I did not emotionally understand them. I didn't understand the amount of work it took to do it. I didn't have a support group coming out of that that I wanted to participate in. I didn't go to sober living afterwards. I went back to my apartment and went back to my job and found myself in these routines and behaviors again. You know, I didn't have, the aha moments I had was when I was alone writing in my room, reading here with a thousand faces. How would you rate the, the handoff that occurs when somebody's in treatment, they help the guy get sober, they teach him how to live, he goes through IOP, and then the, hand, the great handoff that's supposed to be there at the end is to AA and meetings and 90 and 90, et cetera. How would you rate that handoff? And who fell down on the job? Was it them? Was it you? Was it a combination? I'd say that they 
at least that specific place in terms of that community, in terms of the meetings we're introduced to, in terms of the things that they taught us, generally gave us all the tools that we needed. The tools, yeah. Yeah, the tools were yeah. there. They exposed us. They, um, you know, could I have been slammed through? I got through, I got into my fourth step by the time I got out. I get it. And I went out on my fourth step also. So the, the program in do, going through the first three steps kind of superimposes, if it doesn't completely impose upon you, this idea that perhaps a power greater than yourself is going to help you be able to do whatever's next, whatever's next, whatever's next, even including getting to the fourth step, not being able to do it, and going back to the third and seeing where that was deficient. Where was spirituality? I've heard about intellectuality, I've, uh, intellectualism or intellectual. I've heard about the emotional. Was there, where was spirituality and spiritual development during this period? Being crowded out by ego. Yeah, I, uh, there's the W. Somerset mom line that's it's easy to be a holy man on a mountain. <laughs> right, yeah. yeah. Leaving treatment was getting off the mountain. Did you feel spiritual while you were in treatment? Yeah, I felt holy as fuck. Huh. <laughs> what, was that, what was that spirituality like for you? Was I did not understand at the time, or at least not the way I do now. Right. I mean, like emotionally yeah. understand that the spirituality is what winds up providing the foundation for the rest of these things to, to develop and or gives them the solid ground by which they can play and cooperate. Mm -hmm. I didn't get that. So you came away with these silos, so to speak. You had the, the, the self-knowledge silo you had whatever knowledge or feeling about your emotional life in a silo, and you had spirituality in its own silo. Is that a fair way to describe how you felt at the end? Maybe, or just that I needed more work, and maybe, so we could look at it a couple ways. One was I hadn't gone through enough pain to break through the icy intellectualism, right? Yeah, I get that. Um, from a willingness standpoint, or I didn't know that what I needed was healing. There was trauma, there was healing, there were things I needed to speak to that I had too much fear around. Hmm. I still had too much fear. I was still too ramped up in how people saw me. And vulnerability was dangerous. Vulnerability was still dangerous. That was the narrative. Uh -huh. So there was no room to let that take over because I always took it back. So irrespective of what you gained during that inpatient followed by outpatient followed by no real transition into AA but you went back to your life before treatment. We're talking about at 24, you got sober at 29, so there's another five-year period going on in there. What did that trajectory look like, and how did it start out? What were the high points and low points for you during that time? I was still fumbling in terms of the career that I was starting to develop, mm. attempting to develop. I had a lot of ideas that I wasn't able to take action on. Mm -hmm. I was building new and going nuclear on multiple relationships. Mm. Uh, I had a really good professional start at one point that I went nuclear on. When you say going nuclear on, where, what does that mean? Uh, that means exploding. Exploding? Yeah. So let's take a good situation and twist all the dials to 10. 
and complicate it to such a point that you cut and run. It's such a mess that what do you what do you do with this? There's there's no place to go from here. And at that point, did you just seek out another opportunity to go through that yet again and again and again? I wasn't serial in my relationships. Huh. Uh, I would go through periods of self-isolation afterwards, uh-huh. reflection, self-isolation, hmm. uh, some form of numbing. I used people to help warm me up, and then I used drugs to cool me back down. Sounds like drugs were becoming ever more prevalent as that occurred over that five-year period. Uh, harder drugs became more present and more prominently used, especially in the last couple of years. We're talking about cocaine, we're talking about pills. Coke and meth. Coke and meth, yeah. yeah. Which I never expected to get totally into. I got it meth more than Coke, really, but hmm. both. I was using them both. What were they doing for you that alcohol didn't do, or were you just using them all together in a, a mashup? I used multiple things on top of one another. Hmm. Mm-hmm. It's like I figured out the cocaine and mushrooms didn't work very well together, nor mushrooms and meth kind of deal. Mm-hmm. Acid and coke didn't work very well together. But nor was staying up, running around naked in the woods for multiple days on end, staying on high on acid the entire time was a particularly uh, healthy experience either because I'd usually wind up like existentially broken by the end of it and then just like sobbing for days. Do you ever have any flashbacks or do you have any of those episodes that a lot of people who did acid and other hard drugs have years later? It's just a form of PTSD. It just happens to be one that was induced as a result of chemical psychosis versus any other chemical that brought about a form of psychosis. Most people, when they think about that kind of behavior, they're not as clear with knowing what it was like you just said. I mean, they, you know, you, you knew it was psychosis. You knew that it was enveloping you in that way. In it, it doesn't matter, though. That's part of the nature of it being psychosis. You know, you may have some level of awareness around it, but it doesn't mean a damn thing, at least while you're in it. Yeah. To answer your question, I get waves of things of all of my life in passing moments. Uh, I've always experienced deja vu really heavily also. Uh It's part of the experience. Yeah. That happens to me from time to time in some AA meetings. In fact, today is a perfect example of it. As one or two of the people were talking about some childhood trauma that they endured, and, and I was thinking about, because it was, the topic today was on fear, and what I know from my own experience in, in, in learning about it, as, as well as dealing with it, is that we're only, babies are born with only two innate fears. One is loud noises. The other one is the fear of being dropped. Those are the only two, like, out of the womb fears. Everything else is acquired. I think I already had a fear by that point, though, which was being ripped from the womb because I was C-section. Right, there you go. So, <laughs> so there, yeah, so there, three. There's, a, a, there, there's original trauma there, isn't it, isn't it? We're adaptive. We're naturally incredibly adaptive. I do some other work called clarity process, and one of the things that comes up in terms of looking at the model, the unhurt child, is that we are flexibly intelligent. 
creative and flexibly intelligent. When I hear that, I hear someone that was really smart and went, I need help and caretaking. Yeah. I mean, caregiving, not caretaking, not in the patterned word. Um, and what is the best way to approach this? Well, here's the model of information that I have. That looks like it's a good model. <laughs> At this point, what do I have to lose? Yeah, I'm four or five years old thinking yeah, that. To, I mean, yeah. so, and to have to reckon that later in life and realize the, what I can only imagine is like incredible fear. You're relating to this like a man who has gone through some of these same issues. I relate to the abandonment and some other yeah. stuff. Um, I experienced a lot of verbal and emotional abuse. I think some small amounts of physical abuse. Yeah. I'm not sure. At the two schools that I went to when I was in Trinidad. Uh-huh. Um, How old were you? I was somewhere between like six and eight. And those become indelibly inscribed on our psyches from that point. I think my mom was staying stoned the majority of the time. Yeah. Um, kind of from what I've pieced together since then. And that was in part her own alienation in another country in a place where she was perceived as being other and uh, did not fit in and also had a penchant for self-isolation on top of it with her own isms. So in a way, I think there was there was this is like what I'm, this is a narrative that I'm developing later in life to put a model around this so I can understand it right. I'm not saying it's factually accurate. Um, you know, it seems as though she was probably in a position where she wasn't emotionally available either. Yeah. So when I went through this, I got to a point where I just completely shut down. I didn't talk. I didn't play. I didn't do anything. I had gotten, I, I have migraines. Um, I've had migraines since an infant, basically, yeah, uh -huh. but they got really bad. During that period? Uh, during and after that period for a number of years. Funny note, we talked about when I was you know, 19, 20 years there, my migraines started going away. <laughs> and they stayed gone up until two years into sobriety this time around, and then they came back with a vengeance. Amazing how... You know, we use drugs and alcohol in order to abate or numb the kind of fear or terror that we've experienced. Yeah, it sounds like they did the number on your migraines, though. That's, so it, it was great. Yeah, I had a lot fewer migraines. Yeah, so two years before you're 29, a couple years. 27-ish. 27-ish, you're starting to really ramp things up with regard to the drugs and alcohol consumption. What did the final days look like for you, uh, that, that period of time right before you walked in and made the call or talked to somebody about AA? I had uh, started going back to school again. I was, I got some small part of Pell Grant, to, I got some Pell Grant in order to remove some of the costs. I realized that I had to do it on my own, so I started taking loans for community college to mm -hmm. go back. Mm -hmm. um, at some point, I got kicked out of the co-op that I was living in mm. because I blacked out and crawled into bed with somebody that was totally unwarranted, right. and they freaked out mm -hmm. um, and had to resolve myself from the board of that organization mm -hmm. and all these other things. Sure. 
So that was messy. So I was already experiencing consequences. I think I was on my fourth car by then, third or fourth car. Mm. Um, it eventually gets up to like six. I was more or less keeping relatively normal other than the fact that I was staying stoned and dog walking. All the classes were a cakewalk. The homework was minimal really. Um, and ultimately it got to the point where I was, it was 11 o'clock at night and I was running to grab another bag of Coke or uh, some late, more later on some meth so that I could stay up all night studying mm -hmm. um, because I hadn't been studying the whole week or the whole month or whatever the deal was leading up to the test. Yeah, I was uh -huh. notorious in high school of not doing any homework and getting good grades on exams. So you were moderately functional during this period? Yeah, except that I was completely emotionally dysfunctional. Didn't have much relations with my parents beyond the bare minimum or necessary. Carried a lot of shame in the process. Had a very small social circle. Um, and generally proceeded to stay lit in one form or another if I was alone in my room or if I was out with other people. I don't think I could do anything not, not stoned. I get it, yeah. And then if I drank, I drank in excess. And then I uh, would go home and use alcohol or weed or masturbation, pass out kind of deal. Um, the alcohol wasn't enough to take the edge off of the meth. Occasionally using like Soma's or Xanax would help with that. Mm -hmm. um, if I really needed to crash, I, so this is a good example. Mm -hmm. In treatment, we read acceptance as the answer. That was the story I related to. The whole story, not just the page that we read in meetings. I read the whole story. That made sense to me. Calculating everything so that he could get out of the car with the garage door closed, the back into bed by the time that he lost consciousness. Right? Like that was the level of control that I related to. That paints quite a picture. Um, <laughs> we, I grew up also like joking that my grandfather and the family that I come from on my mom's side is master controller of the universe. Oh, okay. like there was always that control that paradigm. Sucks. Yeah, I get it. Um, so come you know twenty eight, whatever have you, like, I drank and drove all the time. Honestly, I was, I could cycle better. Oh, there was a period there where I was, I didn't have a car and I cycled from uptown to downtown on a nightly basis, completely blackout. And I did that every night. I couldn't walk, but I could bike. So things were heading downhill pretty quickly. My, my social life was progressively turning downhill. My opportunities were progressively limiting mm -hmm. the threat of, uh, you know, jail institutions, death kind of deal, like statistically was increasing because, you know, it's statistically inevitable, more or less. At some point, something is going to happen. You mentioned about the car, the wrecked cars. Were there DUIs or DWIs associated with that? No, I got uh, arrested twice relatively early on one time when I was running to go pick up hash suckers because I used to blast hash and make hash candy and sell it across town kind of deal. They pulled me over on the way out to a town out west, which is known for weed. Sure. And I didn't have anything on me, but they 
they were really gonna get me. They were gonna get me. They were gonna find something. Well, sure enough, there was a metal pipe that I had forgotten about that was in my glove box. It had been sitting there for six months and I had no idea it was there because that's right. how much attention I'm paying yeah, to things, right? Yeah. And uh, three hours later on the side of I-10, he's like, this, this is this is it, this is what, I was like, you, 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 were, you were the one that turned this into this. Yeah. And I didn't have the hash candy on me, which would have given a production distribution charge, which was a federal charge. So I dodged that one. There's, there's God doing me a solid. We get back to the station, and just before we walk in the door, he looks at me and goes, have you been drinking? I was like, it's a little late to ask that, don't you think? I had just been going 110 down the highway, <laughs> completely lit and sobered up in the three hours on the side of the road, yeah. waiting for them to finish the search. So like, things like that, I dodged consequences. Mm -hmm. Sure, I stayed in jail overnight. My mom was nearly blackout on Ambien when she came to pick me up and mm -hmm. then was swaying in the road on the way back lecturing me. Mm -hmm. And I can't say anything because I'm in the wrong. I just got picked up from jail. Right, sure. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> wow. But clearly things are not uh, the way one would normally manage their life. So right up to the edge, the turning point, the moment of clarity. I'm about to drop out of school again. There was one point in treatment where I realized that I was going to have to do this for myself. You're talking about the first treatment. Treatment, yeah, when I was 24. So you learned that there. There's, there's too much fancy, fluffy shit around me. Right. Like, this is too nice. People, if there are people that get sober that do so without all of these privileges and resources, mm -hmm. shit, that's going to be what's going to need to happen. Hmm. Well, come the time. Last instance, I go with my then partner at the time. Her brother's getting married. I get really involved in helping set up the evening. There's high tension. Mm -hmm. I start drinking early. Mm -hmm. I'm blackout three or four hours in mm -hmm. and then proceed to run around like a madman for the next six hours, blackout, come up, come to at three o'clock in the morning in her parents' backyard, clawing at the fence, crying, screaming, I don't, I don't understand, or it's not true or something like that. <laughs> I don't understand what happened to this day. And they had taken my keys at some point. And of course I was resourceful and kept a spare set of keys underneath the car and got into the car and began to drive away with their dad going, How, what the, what's the, and then just finally saying, fuck it, it's not worth it kind of deal. And drive back down the highway, realize that I can't drive anymore and um, proceed to get into the passenger seat because you can't get arrested for a DUI if you're not in the driver's seat. Mm -hmm. um, similar instance, I took my car down a flight of stairs one time, um, blackout, and they couldn't arrest me with the DWI because they didn't find me inside the car. <laughs> yeah. So technicalities, little technicalities. It's always, it was seven o'clock in the morning. Yeah, I get it. I get it. The sun has risen. It was right next to HPD, like yeah. stuff like that. So you sped away from this wedding. Yeah. You can't drive anymore. You pull over to the side of the road. You move over to the passenger seat. Pass out for a few hours. Uh-huh. Come to a few hours later. Mm -hmm. Drive the rest of the way home. Uh-huh. Existentially miserable. I call my mom, and it's basically tough luck. I don't have any more sympathy for you. It's just too heartbreaking. It's too exhausting. You know what you need do and it's up to you to do it and you're either going to do it or you're not going to do it uh -huh. so i'm going to let you go and i'll talk to you later where was your father doing all this 
Mm, was he around or around working whatever living life but you called your mom that time yeah as most people will do yeah she's always been more intimately relatable yeah i get I it. didn't learn to emotionally divulge from my dad i learned that from my mom i also learned to emotionally or weaponize my emotions and weaponize my words from my mom too so so she says you're on your own you're either going to do the work or you're not going to do the work you know where to go and you know what to do you've been introduced to it that was what treatment became for wow when you hung up you must have felt so alone I mean, the come to Jesus was calling her in the first place. Was it? I was like, oh, God, okay, I don't know what else to do. I needed tough love at that point. Mm -hmm. You already know the answers. In my experience these days, like, I went to a meeting within 24 hours. I got a sponsor that same day. I started working the steps. I had become willing. I had received the gift of desperation. So the very next day, you're in an AA meeting? Yeah. What do you remember about that meeting? Just a couple of the people in the room and asking somebody at the end to sponsor me. What did he say? Okay. I'll be your temporary sponsor, at least. So my temporary sponsor lasted for two years. At what point did he start taking you through the steps? Was that pretty quickly? Pretty quickly. Yeah. How did you feel sitting in the meetings, the early meetings? Did you feel a, a sense of relief, or were you resistant? Uh, were there things you liked hearing or hated hearing? What was that experience like? I think it was all generally really positive. I enjoyed it. It was the only place I felt safe from myself, from the world. Uh, I knew what they were for by that point. Mm -hmm. I had been exposed to what they could be if I was willing. Mm -hmm. And that meant a lot. All that treatment time suddenly mattered because it showed me that it is here if I want it. Yeah. But now I have to work for it. Yeah. It's not just going to get handed to me. you got to want it. It's not for those who need it. It's for those who want it. And I wanted it. And that meant I was willing to work 12, 14-hour days and then go to a meeting at the end of the day and then drive an hour back home and then sleep for five hours and then start the day over again the next day and do it all over again. And that was what it took for me to reset myself because I was at a total loss. I didn't know anything anymore. And I finally became willing to say, I don't know. I had been a know-it-all this whole time up to that point. Your ego was smashed at that point. Thanks, God. So you experienced some true humility early on, it sounds like. I, I say these days that like, if we don't seek humility on our own, the universe will give it to us. Yeah, and usually it's with a kick in the pants as opposed to a gentle nudge. It's right? not on our terms anymore. <laughs> That's right. That's you can right. either choose this on your terms on your own, or yeah. you can have the universe choose it on terms that you might not like yeah. the next time around. Well, that's a very wise way to put it, too. And I can sense the wisdom that you've gained from the program, not learning about it, but actually experiencing it. How long did it take for you to work through all 12 steps? I think like two years. I dragged my fourth step. Did your sponsor, how did he handle that with you? In a relaxed manner. He wasn't going to lose his own shit over it, just the occasional, hey, yeah. How's it coming? Yeah. Yeah? Because I was doing other things. Um, I wasn't ever very good at picking up the phone. I, I picked up the phone to him. And that was the first time in my life that I was actively seeking out other men to just chat on the phone. That was not something I had ever done in my life. I didn't want to. Being on the phone meant you were anchored and you couldn't do anything else. I do it now while I'm driving because I'm not in the middle of something else. What was your response when you got to the 12th step? Did you feel uh, that you had had a spiritual awakening? Yeah. Yeah. What was that like for you? I'd say different, but different than what? 
I wasn't the same person that I had been. I think I had received enough feedback by that point from other people who had witnessed some of it to go, you're a different person. And I think I had a little insecurity about that, um, but was also open and active, more actively engaged than I had been. I had grown increasingly engaged, mm -hmm. increasingly open, was, was focused on this path. This is the only path I know forward. I'm tired of trying other ways kind of deal. I had traveled by that point. I had been to meetings in other countries. I had been pretty thorough even though the time took a long time on my fourth step, to and had done enough work to recognize that I have a large capacity for white-knuckling things. So in a way, that time really gave me a chance to witness myself sober in action and go, this is but a beginning. I had graduated from college. I had six months to a year left, I don't remember which. I made this appeal to the dean when I got sober and just went, I'm about to fail on everything. Uh -huh. Can you give me incompletes on, a, on these couple classes? And I will do everything <laughs> to, to make this right, yeah. but I, I'm gonna fail out again if I don't have an opportunity. And I'm willing, um, change, I'm changing, I'm changing everything. <laughs> and I made good on it. So the really cool part about interviewing you, um, Ryan, is that your period of sobriety is fewer number of years, let's say, than some of the other people I've interviewed. But the cool thing about it is that the recency of it is so vital. And I, was, I wanted to ask you about what your life has been like over the past since you completed your the 12 steps, what your life has been like in AA and how AA has influenced your life outside of AA. I started a relationship, I got totally miserable, I separated from the relationship, I was tremendously dry, I started the steps again with a new sponsor because my sponsor <laughs> disappeared at some point during that time oh because he went through his own crap and uh, was no longer present or available in my life and mm -hmm. realized that the temporary sponsorship was over, basically, and I was like, oh shit, I need to find another sponsor. This is at two years. Uh, this is like two and a half, uh, I get it. three years uh -huh. now, yeah, sure. yeah. Uh -huh. Absolutely miserable. Come across my current sponsor. Current sponsor's like, I see you're still sober and miserable. Clearly something was missed. And we're going, So we start again. And this time, I was able to get deeper into things. I had a better sense of urgency. I was more able to find willingness when I needed it. Like I knew how to seek it. And with that, willingness and seeking it came a skill set of oh this is how i deal with life on a day-to-day -day basis mm -hmm. this is how i deal with life on life's terms admittedly it was really only in the last year that i read the 10th step for every word that was in it in the book which is oh there are four very specific instructions here <laughs> you should actually do each of those four things which is why I was like well, you know Marty talked and I was like at once at once um, and I don't know for whatever reason all the other times that I had read it like I never realized that those were clear and deliberate instructions that were wholly independent of the eleventh step and I feel like people conflagrate ten and eleven a lot I think I just I had to get my brain had to get washed enough in order for the new thing to stick. I mean, more or less. You mentioned some sponsees earlier. How, at what point did you start sponsoring other men? And what's your experience been like with that? 
that I have had experience uh, starting to sponsor people and then having them not stick around or going back out, realizing how quickly that I seek to enable or make possible or make easier or explain away things to people that they need to have their own experiences with. I've learned a lot about my own codependent behaviors as a result of that fact, as well as how I meter or seek to either A, gain people's trust or B, challenge their trust mm. um, with sponsees. But that of at least of the last year, I've had a couple. One that has been relapsing every few months, mm -hmm. um, some of which I think is, is just unwillingness to be broken and accept brokenness and seek an alternate solution wholly. Um, he's kind of been doing the one, two, three shuffle for a few times. Another guy who went and did the marijuana maintenance routine for some months and came and showed back up and saw me at this meeting we went to earlier and was just like, can you sponsor me? The, what I've been trying to do doesn't work. I just went, okay, let's start. How's that been working out? Uh, I think it's been really good. Cool. I'm so it's really only in this in this latter season I'm experiencing really working with sponsees. I wanted to just acknowledge the importance of that and the fact that you've stayed sober is the best evidence in the world of successful sponsorship irrespective of how many men or whether or not they actually stayed sober. And I, the compassion that I can give to another person outside of the rooms is not only a gift, but it's kind of what I believe to be part of what my duty is in this process. I've known people in the program who feel like the only way to be successful as a sponsor is for the people that you sponsor to stay sober, and they don't. They feel like they failed. And the, the thing I like hearing the least in AA is a guy saying, I don't sponsor anybody because I've tried that before and people didn't stay sober, so obviously I'm not a good sponsor. And I just want to shake them and say, wait a second. You don't know, shake the baby. Don't shake the baby. Here's someone that's reacting out of their own pain. Good point. Right? My, my first reaction is to shake the baby also. <laughs> right. But how do I stay? You know, we've come to understanding and effectiveness. What can I do for this person? And it's really back to, like, how do I encourage them or give them the space to recognize that, like, it sounds like they have heartbreak over it. Yeah. And I'm experiencing heartbreak listening to their story yeah, yeah. and going, I'm so odd that you are still staying this course and I hope you find the desire to share it with other people again at some point. Yeah, and listen, uh, you know, sp sponsoring other people is not for everybody. Not everybody wants to do that. Different kinds of service. There's different types of service. Um, so you've been sponsoring. What other sorts of things have you been doing within your program to make sure you stay centered? When I read, when I jump started it, yeah. right? Uh, when I started the steps over again, I actually wound up working or not working, volunteering at a coffee shop in one of the clubs oh, wow. for three, four nights a week, and then would run the coffee shop for the evening through all the meetings, make sure the evening meetings were good, uh -huh. and then mop up and then close up the club. And that was a great way to introduce me to other people, get me involved in Surface, keep me out of myself, 
right. and be the face of that club for the new guy. That's And that's absolutely right, which led to other sponsees that yeah. may not have worked out, but gave me incredible insight to how much of a tornado I had been <laughs> when I was still in my disease, yeah. or when I am still in my disease, because sometimes I can still act out of it. Yeah, and isn't it amazing how people can be that mirror for us? And just be like, oh my God, I can't believe it. I was, <laughs> I was that nuts. Yeah, yeah. And, and seeing someone else react and look at you and be like, is this your guy? Yeah. Like, what is going on? <laughs> just like, I don't know, man. I don't know. He's just like this. And in my head going, I was like that. Yeah. Um, it's an incredible experience. Well, you strike me as a man who is contented in his sobriety. Is that a fair assessment? Maybe not as of late, but you generally speaking, um, I'm content with good work. Yeah. But I don't think that I... I don't believe, nor is my experience, that I stay content just because of work that was done. Yeah. I do continue to reap benefits from those experiences, and I seek to apply them to continue to reap from them and to continue you know, to dig from that treasure. But, um, but there's an ebb and flow, isn't there? It, it comes and goes. I think I'm kind of at that point where I have to find another way to open myself or find another layer to open up uh, with regards to this period, that like post five year thing that I've heard about, um, I'm experiencing some of that and going, all right, I need to go deeper into the same tools and apply more rigor yeah. and find out what I can. Some schools, I think, say very actively do that. Other schools say, just keep showing up and the you know and do the work and it'll happen on its own. Yeah, I'm um, I'm more of the former than the latter on that one. I think there is there's always going to be as much in front of you as there is right now. Yeah. And there's going to be work to do and there's going to be other things that that will affect the quality of our day-to-day -day thinking and our our acceptance of the gifts that are given and seeing things as a gift is often a difficult thing, but you know, you strike me as a guy who's very realistic about his program and uh, ready to do what's ever necessary. And to me, that portends future sobriety for you if you continue to do those things. Hopefully. I just love seeing that in another man. And I can relate so closely to a lot of the things you're talking about. And I honor your sobriety. I really do. And I respect your approach towards your own self-knowledge and self-love. Self-knowledge alone is insufficient. Well, yeah, absolutely. That's why I said self-love and spiritual connectivity that we know we have, but we have to continually acknowledge that we have. It's like this, you know, I heard someone say, God's center is everywhere, but his circumference is nowhere, which means that we're all centered in that spiritual system. And I see that in you, and it, it continues to impress me. And being able to do this interview today has just meant the world to me, man. I love you. You're a terrific guy. And Thank you. I hope that we have many, many more years together working the program in our own ways and with other folks. Is there anything else you'd like to say just kind of in wrapping up? It'll come to me afterwards. Cool. <laughs> cool. Well, Thank thanks you. a million for doing this, Brian. You're the best. Dude, you're fantastic. Thank you for continuing to do this. Well, my friends, that's it for today's episode of AA Recovery Interviews. I want to thank my guest, Ryan A., for sharing his story, and thank you for tuning in. If you enjoyed AA Recovery Interviews, will you please tell others how to listen to it? 
Of course, you can listen to many more interviews in this series by following this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Pandora, Stitcher, and other podcast providers. Or tell Siri, Google Assistant, or Alexa, play AA Recovery Interviews podcast. Or visit our website, aarecoveryinterviews.com, to hear every show, share your comments, and also contact us. If you want to email me directly, it's Howard at aarecoveryinterviews.com. By the way, this podcast strictly adheres to AA's 12 traditions and all general service office guidelines for safeguarding anonymity online. I pay all production costs and no one receives financial gain from the show. AA Recovery Interviews and my guests do not speak for or represent AA at large. This podcast is simply my way of giving back to AA that which has been so freely given to me. The next episode of AA Recovery Interviews is on the way, so keep coming back. It'll be here soon.